One Precious Life. It's a quote from a, a poem, and the poem's called The Summer's Day, and it's by uh, Mary Oliver. And she says, tell me, what, it is, what is it that you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? So we've got people who are pioneers here from some of the oasis countries around the world. Yesterday, we sat down together. Uh, We met all day yesterday, meeting all day today and all day tomorrow because we're planning slowly what we're doing around the world. But yesterday, we sat down and we talked about some of the pain of being a pioneer and getting stuff started. But the question remains is, what are we all going to do with our one wild and precious life? I've got a friend, her name's uh, Sophia, and I've known her for the last 35 years, I suppose, and on Friday she died. Um, And, uh, uh, yeah, I've known her all of those years. Corny and I have known her all those years. We know her husband, her kids, one of her kids worked for Oasis uh, for for a while. Um, Her husband worked for Oasis in India, actually, not then her husband, But Sophia died on Friday. I have to tell you, her life was a life really well lived. It was a brilliantly lived lived life. Because she knew she had one precious life. And life goes fast, doesn't it? And I'm sure that the older you are in this place, the more you know that it goes fast. But anybody who's over the age of 20 knows it goes fast. Every year seems to go faster than the last one. Have you noticed that? Well, here's the truth. They never stop accelerating. Your life is going to rush past. Though it's easy to think some of us are young and some of us old, in historical terms, we're all crammed together in a tiny little parcel of history. Our lives are temporary. Our lives are passing. We are all, in the end, dust. So... What are we going to do with our wild and precious lives? How are we going to invest them? I know that it's a real issue for lots of people. What do I do with my life? How do I spend it? Some people say, I just can't work that out. I'm not passionate about anything. I don't know what to do. I drift from job to job. If only I could find something that I really cared about. Other people saying, well, I'm too old and I've blown it and I've missed it and it's too late, etc., etc. I'm too thick. I'm not educated enough. I don't have a degree. I don't have the right degree. I don't have the right qualifications or experience in the right way. Here is um, a picture I got off the internet But I've seen many, many of these. I can't tell you how many churches I've preached in. It is a notice board from a church, and it's about the church's missionaries. Do you recognize it? It says, called to serve, along the top. And then it's got uh, those clocks, uh, world clocks. And then there's a... It's classic, isn't it? There's pictures of those, um, however many it is, half a dozen or so people who are serving gods in different places of the world. There's um, some in uh, North America, some in South America, etc., etc., some in Asia, somebody right at the top of Africa somewhere, can't quite see where it is. So the church has sent people out. Have you seen notice boards like that in churches? It's like standard issue and it's a standard heresy. If I could have my way, I would remove all notice boards that look anything like that from all churches ever. We don't have one. You'll never have one. Well, I'm involved in the church. I hope if you have one beyond that, it's up to, it's up to you. But here's the way it works in Christianity. All Christians know that there's a hierarchy. And at the top of the hierarchy comes God the Father. Just under 
God the Father is God the Son. I've come to do the will of my Father who sent me, said Jesus. God the Father's at the top. God the Son's a little bit further down, though we're not quite sure how that works. God the Holy Spirit, he's there, well, to assist us to do all of the stuff. So he's down the pecking order. Then come the angels. It's in Genesis, we say. Somewhere we know that this is the hierarchy of all hierarchies. After the angels come the missionaries. Missionaries. Yes, that's why we put them on our notice boards. Because they've gone to serve. They occupy a central role in Christianity. After missionaries on the pecking order come full-time Christian workers. Pastors, youth workers, etc., etc., and then right at the bottom come the rest of us. We kind of don't really figure very much, except, as Jerry's reminded us, Thursday's prayer meeting. It's an opportunity to pray for the needs of this community and the needs of our globe, and that's our job, isn't it? I'm not uh, saying don't turn up at the prayer meeting, I hope you do. I really hope you do, and I really hope you do, but that's our job. I mean, there are all these important people up the chain, and our job is to pray for them and support them. No one really cares what we do, what's going on in our lives Monday to Friday, Monday to Saturday, but we do care about what's going on in the missionaries' lives. The funny thing is that on the missionary board are a number of people who do exactly the same things we do, but they just happen to do them in different places. So if you go to work for Tier Fund, for instance, or in any other great mission agency, and Tier Fund is a great mission agency, around the world, you get on the prayer board. And you get to be prayed for at the prayer meeting. But the job you might have gone to do around the world is to be an administrator in a hospital or a teacher in a school. Or an engineer building houses or roads. Or an accountant working the books of an organization. But because you've gone to do it in Kenya, you are on the missionary board. Whereas if you did it for Lambeth Local Council, you're just one of the rest of us who doesn't get prayed for. And nobody even really, what does he do? I think he works down the council. I think it's pretty boring really, but that's what he does. It's an extraordinary hierarchy we've set up where we've called some people to serve and their jobs become really important and the rest of us miserable people our job is to show up at prayer meetings to put the money in the offertory plate and to keep their show on the road when I was a kid I went to a church in South London and once every three years our missionary came home. She was in the Congo. It keeps changing its name, the Congo, but she was in the Congo. That's what they called it exactly that then. And her name was Marjorie Weber. And every Sunday afternoon, because I went Sunday afternoon, Sunday school, we used to bring our money, our pennies, and we used to put them in a big box that they used to pass around. My mum gave me the money. I had to keep it in my pocket. 
and uh, make sure I didn't spend it on sweets on the way. And then I had to put it in the box. And as the box went round, we used to sing a little song. It was called, Hear the Pennies Dropping. And then you had to hear the penny drop into the box. And then uh, our Sunday school superintendent, called Mr. Dalwood, would stand up at the front and he'd pray holding the box and he'd pray over it that this money would go to help Marjorie in the Congo. We had no idea of the mechanism by which the pennies were delivered to the Congo every week, but we assumed that they were. Every three years, Marjorie came back on furlough. Missionaries don't have holidays, they have furloughs. Um, so, I could never work that out either. But, you know, because my dad just had a holiday, but if he'd have been a missionary, he would have got a furlough. And Marjorie used to show up, and she'd be around for months, it seemed, and then she'd go. So we'd prepare month by month for the arrival of Marjorie. And um, Marjorie would show up, and this, this is just my boyhood memory. Marjorie would show up, and she'd stand at the front of our Sunday school class. In fact, she'd come to church in the morning, because I used to go in the morning and the afternoon and the evening. I'm a very religious bloke. And... Marjorie would stand at the front of us, and I remember the first time I was old enough to consciously take all this in, and I looked at Marjorie, and she told us that God had sent her to the Congo to serve him. I had no idea where the Congo was. There was no internet then. Do you, do you know what I mean? It's, uh, there was nothing like that. Information wasn't readily available. All I knew was that the Congo rhymed with bongo. I said, you're a kid. That's all you can work out. Congo, bongo. And I'd heard stories at school about mad, frenzied dances with bongos ending with people being eaten by other people. And that was my image of Marjorie. And I remember the first time she stood in front of us and she said this because this is the kind of thing missionaries say, she said, she was very humble, she said, I, I never wanted to go to the Congo. I just wanted to work in a bank. That's what she, she said. <laughs> I just wanted to work in a bank. But God sent me to the Congo. And I remember thinking, God sent you to the Congo. I wouldn't have sent uh, I wouldn't have sent Marjorie down the road on her own to get a pint of milk. She was frail. She needed caring for. And her clothes were awfully out of fashion. I had no idea why people walked around in clothes like that. I later learned, of course, that in the Congo, the clothes that she wore in this country weren't a lot of use. So they were probably really fashionable when she bought them 25 years ago. And she only ever wore them once every three years. So she thought she was on the cutting edge. But she wasn't. Poor Mary being sent by God to the Congo to avoid being cooked for supper in some frenzied bongo activity, survives it for another three years and then turns up with us. And we're all terribly grateful before dispatching her back for another three-year battle. This is what it took to get on the missionary board. If you could take the pain, you were on the board. 
but otherwise you were just the rest of us. And then, as I got older, I actually, I grew into an adult. Mary, uh, uh, Marjorie, uh, Marjorie Weber, uh, re uh, retired, came back to this country. She'd always been single. And there was a Baptist minister whose wife had died, and she married him. And I went to their wedding. And I discovered that Marjorie was this wonderful person. I really wouldn't have sent her to the Congo to do all of this stuff, but she became my friend in the later years of her life. She was wonderful. And I discovered that what she was doing in the Congo, actually, was that she was working with money. Because she'd always wanted to be a bank clerk, and actually she was a very good bank clerk, and she was in charge of all the money at a missionary hospital. It was just a hospital. Why it had to be called a missionary one? It was a hospital. And she did an absolutely brilliant job at that. Can you see my point? If you do the right job in the right part of the world, you get on the board. If you do the same job down the road, you don't get anywhere. You're just one of the rest of us. And that's the heresy. And that's why I ban missionary boards. If I was on room 101, that's what I'd put in the bin. Missionary boards and photographs and bits of string and ribbon linking photographs to various places in the world. Unless you could revolutionize the whole thing and everybody here, we could have our own picture and our own piece of ribbon linking us to where we serve in the local community or in London. We are all in active full-time service. There are no full-time Christian workers or we are all full-time Christ-centered servers and it may be that we're paid for the job and it may be that we're not paid for the job it may be that we're retired it may be that we're too young to be employed but employment has nothing to do with our vocation in life which is lifelong every day all consuming that's what it's about here's this fantastic quote from the bible reading we had jesus said this i'd like you to think about this what do you find strange about this statement my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him, his father, who sent me, and to finish his work. Do you find anything strange about that? Just ponder it for a sec. Here's what I find strange about it. It's this. Work knackers people. I've been working, uh, just yesterday uh, we were in a session together and we were discovering that if you work more than nine hours a day, boom, you've had it. You're, you know, your energy trails off, you kind of become pathetic at everything you do. You've got to stay within certain boundaries and limits. I'm not knocking all of that, I, under, I understand all of that. But work in our culture, for many of us, and for some of us in this hall right now, is, is dehumanizing. Our work is dehumanizing. It, our work drains us. Our work exhausts us. And because it drains and exhausts us, we need to do something else to re-energize. We need to get our energy from elsewhere. But here's the funny thing. Read what Jesus says again. He's effectively saying it. 
My work is my food. What does food do? Gives you nutrition. It does energize you. It brings you to life. It gives you energy. Your food is the thing that sustains you. And your work is the thing that drains you. But Jesus is saying the very opposite. He's saying, my work is my food. It does sustain me. It does energize me. I'm out of bed in the morning and I'm alive because of what I'm doing. So how do we discover work that inspires us rather than traps us? It's a big question, isn't it? And I know that amongst as many of us are here this morning, there are some of you, some of us who are not in work at all, and we wish we could be in any work that would bring us inspiration. And there's some of us who do anything to get out of the job we're doing because it's draining us. And I understand everything about finding, well, I don't understand everything about finding life balance, but I know that finding life balance is really is really important. And we all work at different paces, don't we? And we all have different appetites. And actually, at different phases of our lives, um, it works differently for us. I'd like to introduce you to a formula. This is the formula that I think sets us free to lead our lives well, our one precious life well. This is the formula. G plus P plus V equals F. For all you mathematicians. Here it is. G is, of course, as Einstein would have said, had he been here, your gifts or skills. Your gifts or your skills. Now, some of us will say, well, I haven't got any gifts and certainly got no skills. I'm just useless. That's my problem. I'm too old. I'm too young. I'm too thick. I'm too short. I'm too tall. I'm, I, I'm, just, I'm, I'm not any good at anything much. I'm not special. The truth is, we are all gifted. We all have skills. But our problem is that we discount our skills because we think everyone's got them. Oh, that's easy. So, you take Emily or Flick. You know, they're both prone to playing the piano. You know. So, but I know because I talk to them both. Flick is saying, oh, I'm not very good. Just do it. It's just what I do. Do you know? It's like... And then someone will stand, Jill will stand up and say, well, i just stand up and talk, you know, just, uh, you know. Jerry, he's multitasked, isn't he? He plays the bass, he does the coffee, he's racing around all over the place, he's running the prayer meeting. The but Jerry, you go, oh, well, I, honestly, I have this conversation with Jerry, oh, you know, it's just what I do, it's nothing much, you know. So what we do in life is we discount our skills and our gifts. Because we see it's natural and normal, like anyone can do that stuff. But the point is, anyone can't do that stuff. We need our friends to tell us about what we're good at and we need to believe them. When we need friendships that will honestly tell us what we do and what we do well. So Roe, take Roe, because I'm looking at Roe. This church couldn't have been built without Roe. Do you know who came here and worked with me at the beginning? And so we would have no schools and no farm and no this and no that and, that, that and nothing without Rose constantly working away at this. But Rose go, oh, well, you know, it's just anyone can do that. Not anyone can do any of these things. Your gifts are, let me define them for you. Your gifts are the things that you do naturally and you enjoy, and you think everybody must be able to do. Because you can swim in it, because it's 
just like, whoa, water. You know, it's just so straightforward to you. You assume that everyone can do those things. But these are your gifts. These are your gifts. Gifts plus passion, context. The problem with gifts, skills, is if we don't use them in the right context, it does become dehumanizing. So, take for instance the gift of working with numbers. I've got, uh, I've got two friends. One, uh, one, who, um, one who's really good at numbers and worked as an accountant and was bored stiff and eventually became a teacher. And one who's good at numbers and was a teacher and was bored stiff and eventually became an accountant. It's not that teaching's a better profession than accountancy or accountancy's better than uh, teaching, etc. It's just that using your gift out of the context of your passion, your passion is about the context, will still be draining. So, if you're good at numbers... You've then got to find out, what's my passion? Do I like teaching? Do I like research? Do I like order and accountancy? Do I, what, how do I use this great gift of numbers that comes to me? I've got a friend, a really good friend who works for Oasis. Um, he's worked for Oasis for years uh, now. And he's responsible for all of the accountancy for all our schools. And his name's Mark. And when I first knew him, he was unemployed. He'd tell you this if he was here, because he's that kind of person. He was unemployed and he was depressed. And he'd worked for a huge corporate and he'd been responsible for all of their finances in the UK. A really well-known corporate. And he'd left and he was doing nothing. For the last decade, at least, Mark has worked doing... He is the financial director of Oasis Academy Learning, which has huge financial responsibility. And he loves what he's doing. He loves what he's doing, except when he moans about it. But he does love what he's doing. He loves what he's doing because he's using his gift in the context of his passion. And before, he was trying to use his gift out of the context of his passion. The V is for values, core beliefs. So it's about use, knowing what our gifts and skills are, thinking through what our passion is, and we need friends. I'll suggest ways of doing that in a moment. And then underneath that, asking, what are our core beliefs? So I want to follow Christ. I believe in justice for all. The sense of justice and equality for everyone drives me because it comes out of my reading of Jesus, who is my hero. Therefore, if I take my gifts, I won't suggest any that I might have because you'll go, he definitely hasn't got those ones. (laughs) And I attach them to my passion but I use them out of the context of my core foundational values in life, I will still find work dehumanizing and and be longing for the day I retire. I've got to line up my gifts with the right context and my core beliefs, and then I find fulfillment. G plus P plus V equals F, fulfillment. 
But if you've got, if you know what you do and you're using your gifts out in the wrong context, it won't work. If you're using them in the right context, but out of, co- con- out of sync with your core values, it still won't work. So let's, let's take that, that. Somebody who's good at numbers and they work out that their passion is teaching. So before they've been using numbers, their, their numbers skill in a different way, they found it dehumanizing and draining and, oh, it sucks all the energy from them. And then they discover that the context they really love is working with young people or, young, or adults and teaching them. So they swap and they use these skills in the context of teaching others. And for a little while, it really works out, and they're alive. But then it starts going wrong again, and they find it draining for a second time. The reason is normally because they've got their gifts and their passion, their context aligned, but they're doing it out of their context of their core values. So, for instance, to use an example I'd know well, if you take the gift of numbers maths and you find that your passion is young people and you become a teacher but you teach in a school that's just about teaching to the test and getting people over the line and getting them through GCSEs so they got maths plus science at A star to C and all that kind of thing which is very important but you don't teach in the context where you're offering just inclusion to all young people, to those who don't have the right start in life, to those who don't know their dads or mums, to those who've never been held with care and cuddled and kissed and loved tenderly, who've never been touched with anything other than a slap and never spoken to with anything other than a put down, who are shoved in front of a television or a DVD or one of those awful games machines. I like games machines. I, I'm not against any of things in context, you know? And, but they just sat there all evening, mind-numbingly going to sleep. Their brain's not growing. You know that. It's not just how it's having a bad effect on them. It's, cha- it's literally changing the shape of their brain. It's draining their brain. It's crushing their brain. We know that now. We didn't used to know that, but we actually know that now we are damaging people. So if you're teaching in a context that doesn't understand all that and doesn't care about what happens to the kids after four o'clock or three o'clock and what goes on with them at the weekend, you'll still find it draining slowly. Does that make sense? Because you've got to bring together your gifts and your passion and your values and only then can you find fulfillment. I've talked about an example from teaching. You've got to just uh, apply it uh, uh, to yourself. How do you find your gifts, your passion? You've got to talk about it. Who are your best friends? Can you sit down over a meal with them or a drink and talk about this stuff? Why don't you do it later today with someone? Why don't you take a photograph of this and go away and this week in your small group, talk about this and how it works or how it doesn't work and how it's working for you and how you find it. What about finding a mentor? Find someone that you respect who's a bit older than you and ask them carefully if they give you some time. You know, the people that you want to mentor you are probably very busy. So don't ask them for a night a week, but ask them for an hour over a drink every six weeks for kind of three meetings. 
There's so much talent here this morning and experience. Work it out uh, with someone. What about an internship? Not everyone can afford an internship. I totally understand that. I really do. But what about an internship? So you take a few months to experiment in something for a while. And you learn what's good about that and what's bad about that. What about doing a Myers-Briggs test to find out what makes you fly? What about asking your friends and searching for yourself? Are you basically a pioneer or a settler? Are you an entrepreneurial, big-picture thinking thinker, or are you a details person? Are you someone who always wants to get some new territory, some new idea, some new ground claim, this new big project going? Or are you someone who worries about all of that and thinks it's all bit bonkers really and it'll probably fall over unless we get all the detail in place if you're a pioneering person then whoa head off to Congo immediately but if you're a detailed person find a great team to be part of Join that team because every team with a pioneer needs a settler. It's fine to take the ground, but you're going to lose it again unless someone can subdue it, someone can organize it, someone can do the strategy for it, someone can think it through. Does that make sense? Of course it makes sense. And as we begin to do these things, we find our way forward. Here's a picture some stepping stones across an ocean. Your life is an ocean. And these stepping stones aren't in a straight line. I find, honestly true, otherwise I wouldn't say it, tell you, I find a real, one of the problems I find is people come to me and they, they, they sit down with me and they say, Steve, how can we set up an, a charity like Oasis? I want to set up a charity. And the answer, do you know what the answer is? Well, in my experience, there might be a smarter, faster way of doing all this. Of course, I'm sure there is. But my experience is, Oasis, from the time it was an idea in my head to now, has been 31 years of painful journeying forward, stepping stone by stepping stone, not always going in the same direction, slowly picking my way through, and I don't I think I've disappeared at sea somewhere, actually. I don't know. <laughs> in other words, it's easy, isn't it, to have your, your brilliant job in your head. I want to be a... How are you going to get there? It's actually about beginning. I sat with someone just uh, the week before last, and uh, he's in the wrong place. He's in his... Um, 40s, he's in the wrong place altogether in all sorts of ways. He's a great person. He knows what he wants to do. I said to him, I think you should apply for a job at McDonald's. He said, why? I said, because if you get a job at McDonald's, you'll be earning a salary. You won't be worrying about the electricity bill. And from that job in McDonald's, I was picking on McDonald's for no reason at all, but from doing that job, all the immediate pressures on how am I going to stay alive are going to disappear, and then you're going to be able to think 
about what you will do, and I'll help you over the CV, and we'll do all that together, and I, I've got some ideas about how you can talk with some friends, and we'll find out what your skills are, and you can launch out from there. Maybe it is that you're a lawyer and you wish you were an artist, or you're an artist and you wish you were a lawyer. And you think, the gap between being an artist and a lawyer, a lawyer and an artist is so huge. Of course it's a huge gap. I've got a friend, she lives in Croydon, who worked as a receptionist in a small charity, and now she's a barrister in Gray's Inn. It was about a 10-year journey. She's not an ultra-smart person. That's not a put-down for her. Please, if you're listening, you're very smart. But uh, she's not, but she doesn't walk in the room and you go, hey, there's a genius. You go, hey, there's someone like us. But she's got the discipline to take the steps across the water slowly. We're finished. This is what Jesus said. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me. He'd got his gifts and his passion and his core values all lined up together, and that equals fulfillment. Then he said this. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. And then Jesus looks up and he looks around. And he says, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Tell me said Mary Oliver. What is it that you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? You're going to take that risk. You're going to take that jump. Are you where you want to be? Praise God for that. Have you got the gifts that you're looking for a different context? Maybe as we have lunch together, I do hope you can stay because the food's fantastic. We're going to have it down in the uh, school canteen, like Jill said. Uh, the Oasis Food Matters um, have prepared the food for us, and it's all free, which is there is such a thing as a free lunch, although you can leave a donation. There, um, maybe you should talk to some of these guys Uh, from Oasis, from other countries, and find out what they've done. Perhaps you should be working in South Africa. Perhaps you should be working in Zimbabwe. Perhaps you should be doing sports in Zimbabwe or accountancy in Zimbabwe. Perhaps you should be teaching in Zimbabwe. Perhaps you should be setting up a business in Zimbabwe. It sure needs some entrepreneurs to bring some stability in. So, all of those conversations later, tell me, Tell God, what is it that you plan to do with your one wild and precious life?